Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the first session of our Halloween extravaganza Signum Fund uh, annual fundraising campaign finale webathon. Uh, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, your host for the day, and joining me for this first segment this morning are two esteemed, uh, very familiar uh, to me, but very highly esteemed guests, uh, Dave Kale of uh, Silm Film, uh, Silmarillion Seminar, and Riddles in the Dark fame, uh, my long-standing co-host on those various uh, uh, podcast uh, uh, endeavors, uh, and Sparrow Alden, uh, a, a one of the uh, one of the uh, esteemed alums of uh, the Signum University master's degree program, <laughs> um, and uh, one of the one of the uh, several things in addition to sort of uh, sort of a, a general uh, freestanding awesomeness that Dave and Sparrow have in common is that both of them are doing work on sort of combining data analysis and Tolkien studies. Um, and I know that, you know, I, I suspect that there are many people, um, and I actually guess that this number would be slightly higher in Tolkien studies uh, than in, in other uh, sort of literature fandoms, primarily because, of course, if you're a good Tolkien fan, uh, then you will have imbibed at least some uh, resistance to the advance of technology from Tolkien. And so, therefore, <laughs> I think that there are many Tolkien fans who are likely to be uh, kind of resistant to the idea of applying things like data analysis to Tolkien. What can we really learn from Tolkien? Can we really learn anything? Is this just kind of playing games? Does this, does this, you know, produce some kind of mechanical thing? Is there any actual meaning, uh, in this kind of data analysis? I know, um, that I myself had a, a, a sort of healthy dose, healthy dose of that skepticism. Um, but, uh, conversations with Dave and Sparrow have really sort of changed my ideas about that. And I have really come to appreciate the power of these tools, not as a replacement, of course, uh, for, uh, careful interpretive reading, but as a really valuable tool, uh, for interpretive reading. So I am delighted to bring the two of them together for the first time, uh, to talk about this. Dave is doing his PhD, uh, in, uh, in which he's, you know, he's, he's really working through and, and, and applying all of these things. Um, Sparrow, as I said, has just completed, she just completed her, uh, master's degree, uh, in the Mythgard and Signum University program, in which she, uh, has, she did her senior thesis. Uh, some of you may have seen her, uh, her presentation. Uh, the the presentation of her senior thesis work, um, in which she was showing uh, all of the 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 wonderful work that she's done, not only in uh, doing her data analysis of words in The Hobbit, but also you know the sort of incidental side project of making an annotated concordance of the entire Hobbit. Um, <laughs> so you know, just kind of as a as a as a byproduct, really, uh, of her of her thesis. So. Um, Thanks, guys, for joining me today. Thank you so much, Corey. It is a treat to be one of the first alums of Signum University and to represent my fellow alums in the fundraiser. 
that's how right. Is the, how is the fundraiser going? I'm looking at your front screen. Are you feeling good about it? I am feeling good about it. Yeah, we, we are, we are hoping it is our, it is our goal to get to our $35,000 threshold today. Um, we're, you know, we'll be, we'll be holding our webathon throughout the day. And, uh, one thing I wanted to announce at the beginning, I just received notification last night. I got an email last night from a very generous donor, um, who has promised to match the first thousand dollars given to the campaign during the webathon today. Um, so Woo! everyone who gives, uh, to the annual fund today, you know, for the, for this first portion of the day, it's, you're basically getting double the impact of your money for the, for the Signum fund. So I definitely want to encourage people to keep that in mind. Um, yeah, of course, Signum University is a nonprofit. All donations to us are tax deductible. But uh, sort of more, more importantly, we, we, we really are a nonprofit in the sense of uh, really, you know, uh, I, I can't think of any. There's very few things that I've undertaken in my life which have less of an eye uh, to pr- uh, profit and worldly gain than Signum University. Um, we, our goal from the beginning has always been to keep our tuition prices as low as possible to make sure that as much as as much as we can possibly make available to people, we make available for free and everything that we have to charge tuition for, we charge as little as possible. That's always been, uh, that's always been our goal. Uh, business people have told me that, um, having your first priority to keep your prices as low as humanly possible is not the way to succeed in the business world. Um, but, uh, but, you know, this is one of the things that we're doing in, in, in our sort of our own small effort to, to, to begin changing the scene. Uh, in higher education, um, to 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 sort of change the way that that tuition is assigned, to change the way that online courses uh, are done by default. And uh, anyway, it's it's been a very exciting journey, but we do need uh, the help of our students and donors and supporters. If you've been listening to and enjoying the the, the free programs that we offer, uh, you know, then we definitely want to encourage you to consider giving to support what we've done. As you can see on our homepage that Sparrow has up here, we have uh, we have whooshed past our past our first goal. The first goal was the was sort of the essentials that we needed just to keep our our systems running. You know, to, to, to keep the lights on over the course of the year. And we have that now. So that is wonderful. Um, what our tier two goal is about, um, is we have a bunch of extra sort of extraordinary fees to pay this year. As many of you know, we are in the midst of the long certification process and there are a lot of sort of formalized legal processes that we are going through uh, as part of this sort of culmination of establishing uh, Signum as a full and uh, a fully official university. So there are a whole bunch of fees associated with that process that we've got to find a way to pay this year. And if we can get to $35,000, um, then we will be able to have the money to cover uh, those fees. Okay. Well, all right. Perfect honesty. The first round of those fees, there'll be another round of them next year, sadly. But anyway, uh, that's, that's, uh, uh, sufficient unto the day or sufficient unto the year are the fees thereof. Uh, so, um, if that's, that's, you know, we've been working really hard you know, any of you who have been in connection with this for a long time have known how hard we have been working behind the scenes to get all of our, 
you know, certifications done, all of our applications and, and processes in with all of the, you know, the, 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 the bodies, uh, you know, the legal bodies out there that we need to, uh, organize ourselves with. Um, it's been a big process that's, you know, really coming to fruition this year and, uh, that's, Expensive. So that's what our, that's what our second tier, uh, is really all about, uh, that we're trying to raise funds to support that. So, so that's where we are right now. As I said, as, uh, as you see on the screen, we sit at just over 28,000. Um, we are excited for the possibility for today. And as I said, we have, uh, we have matching funds for the first thousand dollars donated, uh, to Signum today. So, so that's where we stand. Thank you for that, Corey. Um, I also understand that a lot of Signum happens because you've got loyal and enthusiastic volunteers. I don't want to forget to say thank you to everyone who volunteers to help Mythgard in every way that they do. Oh, absolutely. Dave? Absolutely. Hey, Dave, where are you broadcasting from this morning? <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, not <laughs> L.A. Oh, well, right. Hey, I'm so it's not 7 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, Fantastic. actually, I got to sleep in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm I'm visiting my I'm visiting my sister Megan who recently moved to Columbus, Ohio to begin her PhD in social work at Ohio State. So uh yeah, and then next week I'm going to Oklahoma to visit my parents. So I'm just jet setting all about. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, I am coming to you live from New Hampshire from Tyconley, the little straw house, and it is a 600 square foot straw bale cabin that I share with three other humans and a dog. So, if you hear anything in the background, it's probably the dog. (laughs) Same on my end. My sister has several dogs. Oh, fantastic. Yes. Would it be all right, would it be very selfish if I wanted to start by showing off some presents that I have made for all of us scholars to share? Uh, No, please, go ahead. Okay, all righty. For my master's project. Now, everyone, you should know, Dave is young and cool and jet sets, right? Back when I was first introduced to computers, we used what is known as punch card and carrier pigeon protocol. So the fact that I found myself doing a digital humanities-based project was a big surprise. Now, of course, the first part of it, the easy part, we're going to start with the the easy part, is I made a concordance, which is simply a list of words from The Hobbit with, as if you click on each one of these, an entry. So for enchantment, every place that it is mentioned in The mm-hmm. Hobbit is listed, and usually with some commentary. About about a third of the words have commentary. So using a computer to manipulate text made perfect sense. I got that. That was great. And mm-hmm. in the course of this project, I used, number one, I used a blog. Now, those of you who might want to refer again to what's going on, have your screenshot tools ready. Um, my blog is right here at Words That You Were Saying. And look at me, this old chick, using a blog because that's where I can change things every day. It's dynamic. People can respond to me. I asked folks if they'd like to request any special words to play with today. And 
and get answers. I can, under individual word entries, I can link, oh, let's get to Dragon, shall we? I can link um, other people's works. Dragons, bottom of dragons. I will be listing, uh, I'll be connecting to Sarah Lagarde's marvelous paper on dragons that she gave at Mythmoot. Um, we can explore the difference between enchant and incantation. Incantation is only used once, huh? But clearly they're from the same root. So the concordance part is what I have created to share with everyone. I hope that you use it. You'll notice a couple of interesting features. Now, the concordance has an about page. On the about page, I list the concordance and something called the Hobbit Paragraph Index. Here we go. If I've got a copy of The Hobbit and you've got a copy of The Hobbit, the chance that we have the same page number for the same quotation after about page two becomes very, very low. What if you could refer to chapter and paragraph number in your book by saying, oh, I'm using the paragraph that begins with Gandalf in the meantime, and then I'll open my copy. I can get your whole quotation. I can get the context from it, and we don't have to be searching back and forth for page numbers. So that's just one of the things that I made for us to share and to use those references in all of our papers as we continue reading and writing and doing great literary criticism. There are other things like paragraphs from 1937 edition. The chapter fives, as you know, are very different. And something I'd just love to show off, the Digital Humanities Toolkit, is the little Python scripts which I used to make the concordance and some of the entries and some of the graphs that you'll see uh, created by my son to help his mom out so the actual programming was not done by me, it, but it was done in-house by someone who knew exactly what I wanted. When I started setting up this concordance, I was very careful. I didn't want to throw in just any word. I didn't want to miss any of the cool words. So I said, okay, we're going to skip the end of um, um, blue, red, white. The most, un the most common words. So my kid wrote me a filter to take out the common words of The Hobbit and only wound up with about 1,500 uncommon words. Here they are right in front of you with links. At the bottom of all these word links is a list of specific, well, still scrolling, specifically proper names. Now it'll take you right to the same link uh, above. And I'm hoping that people who are doing papers, who are doing research, who are doing their deep thinking about The Hobbit and about how words are used, are going to be able to use this concordance to say, I really want to know everything about the term Elven King, <coughs> for example, excuse me. Um, I don't want to just pick the stuff from chapter 9 or the stuff from before the war I want to go to every place that that word is mentioned to see how Tolkien used it how it's different from Elf King for example 
So I've created this concordance for all of us to share and the little list that you can see on the About page. Thank you very much for letting me give a tour. And I've, I've already shown you. For example, comparing Elven King with Elf King. Very interesting. He only uses it twice. Elf that hyphen king and in the same paragraph. Oh. So that always refers to Thranduil. When we go back to Elven King, it seems to also refer to Thranduil. What's going on there? I don't know. This is just our list of words. Okay. A lot of fun to look at. Um, one of the things I noticed as I was putting it together, let's find the letter E, is that eyebrows, let's see, has a really interesting distribution, sort of the pattern of when it's used. We've got eyebrows in chapter 1, 6, 7, 8, and then there are no more eyebrows. That's what put me on to thinking about the pattern of words as they're used in The Hobbit or in any piece of writing. Because, of course, you know, there's nothing going on would mean that a word is distributed perfectly evenly. That in chapter 19, when Gandalf is, is coming back to visit Bilbo, his eyebrows would be mentioned. The fact is that it isn't. So that's what intrigued me. And I remember having a lovely lunch with my thesis advisor, and we said, huh, that's really cool. What about the work that Mike Drought is doing? Okay, I will talk about that more complex analysis later, but meanwhile, excuse me, I am, that's my tour of what I've created for you. We've got a lovely works cited page. We've got my list of things I might do in the future, things I would love to do in the future. And you can always, from the home button, follow the progress of the blog. One little, you know, this week I'm doing this, do-do-do-do-do, and I'm checking the tags, and I'm spell-checking. And I've gotten to the point, I took out the most common words to work with just the 1,500 common ones. And I have gotten to the point, that's sorry, 1,500 uncommon ones, I beg your pardon. I have worked with those uncommon words, and I'm ready to add more to the concordance. So, one of the things I'd love to do today is to hear from the audience what words they'd like to see next. There you go. That is the virtual tour of the words that you were saying blog. And, Dave, what Hopefully is we going... Can... We can we can dive into it a little more deeply as uh, as things go. There's a there is a question from um, Denise Kelly in the chat or um, in the the question queue. She's asking oh, about the the graphs that you're referencing. She was wondering where she can see those. Oh my friend, she has asked the most wonderful question ever here on the blog. <laughs> okay, we're diving all the way in here on the blog. Go over to your tag cloud. Everything with a graph in it is labeled results. Hmm. I have lots of different results, but all the all the graphic results are going to be found there. Uh, for example, ah, in 1937, oh, that's one of my favorite graphs had, right there. This is this is one of the best graphs ever. One of the 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 use of words about sound was almost level, except chapter five. Well, what's chapter five? 
you know, riddles in the extremely well-lit parlor, as we say. No, of course you need more sound words. Mm -hmm. Not only that, all right, Dave, ready? Tell me about how Gollum speaks. What do you uh, What do you mean? What, how it sounds if you listen to God. If you oh, right, right, read yeah, yeah. two pieces of text, what do you say? Yeah, he, yeah, he 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 makes he has a lot of sibilance, makes a lot of noises. Exactly, and his his yep. feet are flapping, and he says yep. precious, and and he hisses at things. So all of those words and, are right and there because it's so, and because of the sort of the ambiance of the of the cave. Um, the sounds are sort of emphasized because he's in a dark area, so he's paying more attention to how things sound as opposed to how they look. Exactly, exactly. We have, yeah. Yeah. we have. Um, I had a little contest in which I put up a graph and asked people what word they thought it was, and ah. I've got a few more graphs to show you guys later when we're ready for a game. I know we're just warming up at this point, but <laughs> right here on this results tag is where you're going to find all of the cool things, you know, graphs of, of uh, archaic words and funny words and British words and common wo- uncommon words. And I had a boatload of fun, just in case you can't tell. So that is the answer, how to find my graphs. Okay, great. All right, I'll scroll the top. So I, I love this I love this um, um, whole project I think this is great this is a, a wonderful illustration of the um, <clears throat> the potential for uh, the set of tools and methods that are developing under the umbrella term digital humanities I mean that's a pretty digital humanities is a pretty ill-defined term and lots of people use it to mean lots of different things but I think um, sort of the sub subset of digital humanities that involves doing text analytics. I think you're demonstrating sort of the potential of it. Um, that Absolutely. is, uh, that it's not, you know, there's, there, there, it is, there is a paradox, right? Being, being Tolkien folks and um, applying these kinds of things to Tolkien's work because they, these kinds of tools come out of sort of the um, long tradition of mechanization and, and, um, and you know the and and like organization and that kind of stuff that seem anathema to the the values of the good characters um, in um, Tolkien. But um, but I think what you've shown is that there that this isn't this is this is like this isn't a sort of a cold um, um, disassemblage or abuse of the text, but actually that it, it's it's quite interesting and can can pull out many interesting insights. So we're not we're not. Um, we're not taking the white light and splintering it with these. Right. You got it. You got it. <laughs> my original inspiration actually was a gift that my wife and I received years ago, um, the Tolkien Thesaurus by Richard Blackwelder. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that work, it's something. It, it it is a concordance. And if I sat down, I understood it. And he wrote it in the 70s and 80s. Of course, there were computers available, but I examined it and I realized, you know, if I had enough three by five cards and enough time and someone else were making dinner, I could absolutely create this by hand. I understand how it works. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of my guideline. If I can understand how I could do something in five years with an infinite supply of three by five cards, then I feel okay using a tool. It's just a tool. I use a fire extinguisher if I need one. 
I use a computer if I need one, to do something that I already understand really well. And because I can do it by hand, I can sometimes check my work. As I say, back in the days of punch cards, I have done my own analysis of variance by hand, so I feel okay. <laughs> using, right? I am that old. I am okay um, using the computer because I know what's going on behind the curtain, and I love helping people discover that. Um, one of my one of my various callings is as a statistician and helping people understand the statistics in front of them. Mm -hmm. That is step one. Um, so, so we're already, just uh, so you know, we're already starting to get um, a, uh, uh, starting to get bombarded by people with uh, words they're interested in. Spectacular. <laughs> then I'm going to look at the list so that I wasn't distracted. I moved the, the chat box off to the Wise side. Decision. So I'm going to go look at the chat boxes while, Dave, you tell us a bit about what you've been doing lately. Sure thing. Um, I wonder, uh, um, is there any chance I can take over the um, presenter? Sure. I sure. share my screen. I, maybe Why? I don't need to take over, but can I share screen? Do I click on I stop showing screen? I oh, got there we go. There we go. There, oh, look at that. Wow, that was quick. So can you see my screen? Yes. Great. And let's see if I can. And it's not covered up. The I'm showing a slide right now. <clears throat> it's not covered up by the um, um, uh, by the. Uh, okay, is it full screen now? Yep. There you go. Perfect. Yes. Yep. Cool. Perfect. And and Corey, would you like to um, would you like to interject a um, uh, pledge break before I before I launch off? Um, well, let me just uh, really quickly mention we've uh, we actually have received seven hundred and seventy five dollars of donations already uh, in this first half hour. So that's that is wonderful. Wow. Thanks everybody for your generosity, and uh, you know keep that coming. If we could if we could uh, reach our thousand uh, dollar matching point, you know, in the first hour of our webathon, that would be awesome. So uh, thanks everybody for for uh, for that already. Um, but um, so yeah, don't forget you can. Uh, uh, going throughout the day again the 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 website the place to go to give your donations if you just go to the Mythgard Institute or signumuniversity.org um uh, pages. There's a there's a button in the top right, the annual fund uh, button that takes you to our annual fund page where you can see updates and things. Um, and uh, you can uh, there. I scroll down. There's uh, all kinds of buttons on that page for supporting Signum University that will take you straight uh, to our site. I can give you the direct address. Um, so yeah, what's the web address, Corey? Yeah, the, well, the 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 direct address. Um, the what I just posted now is the direct address. Uh, okay. Uh, for our um, uh, donation page, so this is uh, through Razu, which is the the company that we're using to uh, uh, to get. Now, of course, the number that you see on this page is different from the number on our thing because our number reflects pledges throughout the year. Many people are giving monthly donations, and you know, in addition to just one time donations, uh, the number at the top of the page shows the the money that we have received already. So, but we are counting, of course, uh, uh, on the generosity of the people who have. Uh, given monthly pledges for the entire rest of the year, so uh, right. so that's here hence folks, the difference between be clicking the this one right here. <laughs> yeah, click that one, and I will like come out to where you live and uh, and and like you know have coffee with you, and we can talk. It'll be awesome. 
right. um, <laughs> but anyway, um, okay, very good, very good. So uh, that's just to, just to, so this is this is the mechanism, and this is just a, sort of a, a reminder. And again, thanks to everybody who has already been donating. And uh, and Dave, I'll hand it back to you. Sure. So um, I'm so uh, I, I will not. I'm going to move quickly through this since I think since we've got you know a full two hours and we can kind of revisit some things. Um, <clears throat> so as Corey mentioned, um, I'm doing my PhD at the University of Southern California, um, and my specialty is in statistical data mining and machine learning. Um, I am. I have. I should. I should preface this with saying that for one, I have zero training in um, anything having to do with literature. I'm, I have far more enthusiasm than I do uh, training. Um, <clears throat> and I should also add that in my PhD research, I don't even work on text analysis or natural language processing or anything like that. Um, I actually work on um, analyzing medical data. And I don't even work with medical text data. I work with um, um, vital signs and lab measurements and a time series of those things. So, um, so I am not an expert on um, anything having to do with computational linguistics or text analysis or um, um, information retrieval or natural language processing or any of those kinds of things. Um, nor am I. Uh, nor do I have any training in literature. Um, I just have sort of an overwhelm, like I have a, an awareness that these things, that these tools exist and sort of a curiosity to maybe start applying them to um, um, these texts that I love. Um, so anyway, so this is not a part of my dissertation research um, and unfortunately it's not something I actually get to spend much time on, at least heretofore. I'm hoping after I pass my um, qualifications talk and I move into dissertation mode, I'll have I'll be spending less time um, churning out papers and more time just working on um, um, interesting projects. And in that case, I hope to um, spend more time on this kind of stuff, or at least moving forward in my um, career. Um, and believe it or not, at several recent conferences, I've started running into other um, computer scientists who actually have similar. I guess this isn't a surprise. There's a lot of other um, computer scientists in my field who are actually also Tolkien and fantasy literature fans interested in doing these sorts of things. Um, so um, there's all these wonderful tools now um, uh, for analyzing text. Um, um, uh, let's just sort of put them all under the umbrella of modern computational methods, statistical modeling, etc. Um, and I sort of asked this question, I wonder if these kinds of methods can generate insights from um, literary texts and specifically fantasy and specifically Tolkien. Um, there's actually a resounding yes to this in a variety of fields, um, uh, especially in like the social sciences. There's been a, a whole bunch of projects. I, I, um, I um, reference a couple of them right now. Um, uh, there's, there's a really cool project called Mining the Daily Dispatch where what they did is they um, applied text mining to newspaper articles from around, uh, from, from sort of the period of the Civil War and start looking for interesting patterns. Um, and then um, uh, a couple folks, a guy, a guy named Matthew Jockers, who's professor of English at Nebraska, I believe now, and then David Mimno, who's a computational scientist, have done some work on um, mining significant themes from 19th century literature. Um, and so increasingly, there's increasing evidence that these things can be very, very useful for getting insights about not just text, but actually specifically literary text. And of course, you've just seen evidence earlier um, from um, uh, Sparrow 
that indeed, yes, these things actually are very powerful tools and can be a, a very interesting lens through which to look at work. Um, so so uh, I'm interested in this idea of applying statistical modeling to the data. Um, <clears throat> statistical modeling typically involves making some kinds of assumptions that the data are generated by some random process. In this case, I'm referring, when I say data, I mean, let's say, the text in The Hobbit, um, uh, which, of course, is a really horrible way to refer to The Hobbit as, quote-unquote, data, but let's, you know, bear with me for the moment. Um, so usually we make some kind of assumption about the how the data is generated, um, and then we collect the data, so collect the data, i.e. Get, get the text of The Hobbit, prepare it in some way for analysis. And then um, in making the assumption, that involves actually formulating a model, some kind of statistical model. And then what we do is we um, uh, infer the parameters of the model, or in this case, in this plot, which I stole from David Blay's excellent talk, in, for a posterior distribution, you know, probabilistic distribution over the parameters of the model. So how does the model work? Um, and in doing that, when you infer the parameters of this model, what you're actually doing is detecting hidden structure in the data. And then what you can do is then you can use, use, use this model and the structure that you've found in the form of these parameters you've learned to try and investigate the, the, um, the real-world phenomena, in this case, literary text, that you're investigating and maybe get some insights. This is, you can think of a model as a metaphor in that it inherently, it inherently highlights some meaning and obscures other stuff. Makes some assumptions that may be very appropriate, makes other assumptions that are not appropriate. So it doesn't tell the whole story about the, the object that you are analyzing or investigating, but what it does do is it allows you to, it gives you a particular lens through which to peer at the thing you're looking at um, um, and as long as you don't take, as long as you don't construe it to tell the whole story, I think that it's actually can be a very useful tool. It's dangerous, but it can be a useful tool. Um, this is, I won't spend a whole lot of time on this, we can come back to this if you want, but the foundation of a lot of statistical modeling is this thing called Bayes' rule, which sort of concerns, uh, leverages conditional probabilities, and it was named for Reverend Thomas Bay, who um, was a great thinker back in the 18th century. Um, so topic models are one particular tool that I'm interested in applying to um, literary text because um, they are a very powerful tool that have had a great deal of success in just being thrown at large collections of text and kind of being able to pull out sort of what are the dominant topics that um, 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 permeate a particular uh, collection of text. So um, one of the classic, uh, this is sort of a, a toy example that David Blay gives in a talk from 2012 where he's applying it to um, scientific literature and looking for topics that um, um, arise in a you know collection of papers published by a particular journal over maybe let's say 10 years. And what you see uh, you know on the left is um, topics relating to like genetics that, that tend to have words like genes, DNA, genetics, um, topics having to do with like evolution. Um, this topic looks like it has something to do with neuroscience. Um, this topic is top, uh, capturing sort of discussions about methods and analysis and how they're analyzing data in these studies. And um, basically what topics do is topics make assumptions about, as I mentioned, when you formulate a model, what you're doing is you're making assumptions about how data or the text are generated. Um, this is one particular model, um, which is, uh, and I know it looks scary and there's a lot of math, don't worry about it, um, 
This is latent Dirichlet allocation. It's a generative model. And um, uh, let me explain to you in human language how it works. You assume that your data, your text, let's say The Hobbit, contains k different topics. And you generate topic parameters. So, um, so that's what this first step is. You say, okay, um, I'm going to formulate what my topics are. Then, um, for each document in, in your text collection, let's say, in this case, a document is something like a, um, a page or a paragraph, you first choose the document length. And when I say choose, what I mean is you're sampling from a probability distribution. And then you choose the topics that um, uh, will be dominant in that document. And again, I'm, when I say that, what I mean is we're sampling from a probability distribution. Then, <clears throat> for each word in that document, you choose a topic from the distribution over topics that you chose for the document. Um, you choose a topic for that word slot, and then you choose a word from that topic. So what topics are, topics sort of informally, you can think of topics as sort of being about something. So in the case of the scientific literature we were discussing before, um, it might be genetics or neuroscience or um, methods and, 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 um, um, and analysis. But in this mathematical model, what a topic is, is it defines a probability distribution over words. It says, um, for this particular topic, if this document um, comes from this topic, then words will come, then, then um, uh, documents that come from topics like that uh, will define a probability distribution over words. So different words will be much more likely to show up for different topics. Dave, I have a so, question. Yeah. May Go I? Um, and this may show you the very different level of which I'm understanding what's going on. Sure, but go ahead. is a topic something that the researcher has chosen what words will indicate the topic? Ah, do you use something like a factor analysis to ah, see what words naturally clump together ah, instead of imposing your ideas on the data? Very good question. So, in fact, when I say, when I say a generative model is telling a story about a data, um, what I'm saying is that this is, we're making an assumption that this is how the data, in this case, the, the text arises. But no, in fact, um, what you can do when you go back to this slide here, this infer the posterior step, what you're actually doing is you're actually learning the topics from data. So to answer ah. your question, it is, it is very much, um, this is very much, um, um, uh, this is totally the same kind of model in spiritually as factor analysis. It's a very, very related good. model. You're okay. assuming you, there are some latent or unobserved topics, um, or in the case of factor analysis, some latent factors that um, mm -hmm. explain your data. You don't know what they are, and then you have a procedure for trying to estimate them from the data. Now, in fact, um, there are hybrid approaches. You can actually insert some prior knowledge into this. You can put constraints on what the topics will look like. And um, oftentimes, if you have a particular agenda, you're looking for some structure in the data, um, you can often get much better results. But yes, there is this nice push and pull between imposing researcher or reader biases and then letting the data sort of inform what patterns you're looking for. Um, Fantastic. Thank you. Yes. And what I will show you in a, in a second with, the Hob with my results on The Hobbit is that um, uh, there may be a case for imposing constraints because it could be that just sort of the unfettered model will find structure that is structure but it is not what you were really looking for. So um, now, 
as what you can see, if this is the generative model that's telling the story about how how your text is is arises, this clearly has just like no connection to reality whatsoever. This is not how authors write books, at least as far as we can tell. There certainly certainly is no sense of um, uh, uh, syntactical structure or grammar here. Um, no no notion of like you know constructing sentences and phraseology and that sort of thing. There are ways to add stuff like that into models like this, but um, even the most sophisticated sort of topic model looks nothing like how we think people actually write or how we read or that sort of thing. Um, and and that's getting at this idea that models are metaphors or lenses through which you look at things. They are not actually like you know it's not an attempt to construct a a plausible story. So um, getting to that notion of abuse of the text, um, these kinds of models, uh, at least basic latent Dirichlet allocation or LDA or basic topic models, look at documents as bag of words. So let's assume this page um, from an unexpected party uh, um, from, chapter, uh, from the first chapter of The Hobbit is sort of the document we want to analyze. This is, to latent Dirichlet allocation, this is what it looks like. It's just a simple count of how often different words appear on the page. Um, and so, uh, obviously, that is also a horrific abuse of, um, of uh, literature, where oftentimes style, construction, grammar, those kinds of things actually play a really significant role in the text. But, as I said, models are metaphors. Um, so, so a document is a bag of word. A document is also a mixture of topics. So what we're saying is that, it, let's assume there are just these six topics. Don't worry about what they are for right now. And we're saying that this document has this, this mixture of topics. The, the topics are sort of, um, this document sort of has each of these topics with these different proportions. So you can see that topic two is by far the sort of dominant topic in this um, uh, document, whereas topic one, this purple one, is kind of the second one. And then different words are attached to the different topics. So documents are mixtures of topics. So, <clears throat> yay! I love it. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's look at sort of what happens when we throw something like this at the Hobbit. Um, I obtained a digital plain text version of the Hobbit. Don't ask where I got it. And then, and based on based on what you sent me last night, Sparrow, it looks like you might have obtained it from the same source. <laughs> uh, mine was hand typed. Were you kidding me? I oh did God. not feel that it was correct to. Do something that could be interpreted as piracy, but when I say, "Excuse me, I typed that," um, no one complains anymore. That's great. I love it. I spent the entire month of January typing the Hobbit. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, yours is yours is cleaner than mine. Um, but, there you but go. We're pretty close. Very pretty good. Close. Yeah, I like it a lot. Although I I did notice. Um, one of the things I had to do with yours that I also had to do with mine, step one, remove all the Unicode text. Yeah, so like, yeah. you know, the umlaus on the A's and Ron's yeah. name and stuff. So, um, actually, you'll notice, uh, Sparrow, in this little sort of itemized list of things I did to the text, yeah, you're going to notice your a lot of these Your steps are the same as my steps. Exactly. Yep, 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 exactly. Um, and these are actually really important. These can have a profound effect on the results that you get out of these kinds of analyses. So I remove stop words, um, just like you did. In fact, I also last night I was playing around and I started using your stop words list as well. And Yay. I noticed that, and I noticed the results look very similar. So, so that's comforting to know that things are relatively stable. Um, I also applied a stemmer. I don't know if that's something you looked at. Oh, but you were. 
You're removing a lot of common words. Um, Yes, I I took out the 10,000 most common words, and instead of stemming with a tool, I did it by hand because I am this big fan of um, intriguing past participles, and I didn't want to lose the connection between rot and work. So that's something that I did by hand, but I was only working with uh, 1,500 words. Well, yes, but let me tell you something. Um, I think that was a wise decision because the the, the stemming, um, the the results that I got out of using these automated stemmers are are okay. kind of horrific. It really yeah. butchers some of the words. I was very um, glad I did that by hand. Yeah, I think that was smart. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, at the end of this process, it's really interesting. Um, sort of the initial text has something like ninety thousand words. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you start removing stop words, you start drastically cutting it down, as you noticed as well. Um, um, and and depending on how aggressive, I have something I can show a little bit later from what I was doing last night. Depending on how aggressive, so like, depending on how many of the the stop words from your list I decided to remove, Sparrow, I got any anywhere from um, six thousand words or sixty thousand words remaining, so two thirds mm-hmm. of the text, all the way down to like nine thousand. So I eliminated Sweet. like. 90,000 the text. So, um, and that's something I want to look into. Uh, as I'll explain in a little while, my the results of this analysis weren't what I was hoping for. Um, so then I have one of, one of the things you have to do with this book um, is um, these methods need to be applied to a collection of documents as opposed to one long document. So, um, um, or even just a small number of long documents. Whenever people apply these to, like, say, a corpora, a corpus of um, you know, novels from the 19th century, you need to do this step as well. You need to chunk your or break up your text into pseudo-documents. You you could imagine any type of uh, process here. You could break it up into pages, break it up into paragraphs, etc. I just did sort of an arbitrary 500-word, you know, like cutoff um, for breaking it up into documents. And then train and interrogate the models. So... Here are some here are some uh, word clouds I created to visualize the topics that we learned um, from this analysis. So um, this is this is for just a six topic model. I can also later on I can show some results for some for like twelve topic models and other things. So um, you can see this topic on the left. You're kind of most prominently the words that are popping up are things like goblin and Bjorn. So the size of the word, by the way, sorry, um, the size of the word is proportional to the probability that the topic assigns to it. So this topic is dominated by Goblin, Eagle, Wolf, Gandalf, Bayorn. So you can kind of start getting a sense of sort of what is this topic covering. It's 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 kind of just basically a topic that seems to cover like um, uh, chapters from early in the book, like um, um, out of the frying pan and into the fire, and um, uh, and then the visit to Bayorn's house and stuff. Um, and you'll you can see sort of why I was a little disappointed in these results. Um, this topic on the top right-hand corner, you can see the, by far the largest word is Gollum. So this is basically the riddles in the dark topic. Um, you can see in the bottom right-hand corner, you're seeing words like door, dragon, smaug. This is a topic that actually is pretty interesting. Um, this is one. This is one of the topics I was more happy with. Um, <clears throat> it is a topic that has to do with the um, with the uh, the quest. And the reason I'm happy with it is it doesn't just pertain directly to a single chapter. It actually covers several different chapters. Um, here's a few more. You can see in the lower left-hand corner we've got a troll topic. Uh, in the upper right left-hand corner we have what, you know, what amounts to the Merkwood topic. 
Um, over here you have like the Lake Town topic. Um, I think six was too few topics, and so what it's doing is it's kind of mashing together um, um, sort of topics that sh occurred together in chronological order in the book, but aren't necessarily mm -hmm. related. Well, so, you know what, Dave? I think sure. those topics look a little bit, uh, particularly with chapters two and chapter eight, they look like some of the patterns I found in my project. Uh, yeah. Kinds of words get used together. So, yeah. pretty cool. Go ahead. That is precisely true because, in, in essence, um, for all the fancy math that I showed, these models are just glorified counting models. They're just yeah. counting co-occurrences within these arbitrary documents that I created. Um, so, yes. So, ultimately, it is going to capture a very similar kinds of patterns. Um, and I was looking, I, last night I was looking through some of your plots of word usage over time, yeah. and I really, I, I, some of those things, I, I, there's a couple I want to ask you about a little later that are really, really, really cool, um, that are capturing some of the things I was hoping to find in the book. So nice. um, this is, what I've done here is now I've plotted the, the topics over the course of the book. And, um, oh. and, and the sort of the vertical size of the topic is proportional to the um, the dominance or the proportion of that topic for each document. So, like at the start of the book, this purple topic here, which is topic three, is by far the most dominant. And basically, you know, basically those the, the early parts of the book are basically dominated by that topic. You know, you can okay. see a little bit so of the there, there's the trolls. They're the trolls. Yes. Yes. All right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, actually, so yeah, the actually the purple topic I believe is this door dragon Thor and Gandalf topic. Ooh. So this is the quest yes. topic, which kind of reoccurs, and then it shows up here toward the end of the book as well. And actually, I should add okay. this: these green lines indicate the chapter breaks. Ah, yes, yes. So you can see so we actually see riddles in the dark. Yes, the dark blue. The trolls are the light yellow. This is awesome. Yes, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, so so when I first set out to do this analysis, let me explain why I'm happy, both happy and sad, uh, satisfied with this and sad about it. Um, um, yeah, that's great, Corey. Good job. Sorry, I will stop being puerile here in the middle of your of your presentation. No, it's awesome. Oh, it's great! I love it. It's it's like a running commentary about the. Uh, I always wanted to. I always wanted to try doing this at an academic conference where you stream the Twitter, right, the Twitter discussion right. about the talk. Apparently, people have tried this and it's gone horribly awry. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It, I bet. It, I mean, it would be easy for that to go awry very horribly. Yep. So, um, so when I first out said it, my goal for this is I was hoping. So a lot of a lot of what people you know one of the most interesting ideas of the Hobbit I think is the fat is the evolution of tone throughout it how it goes from being sort of a children's fairy tale to increasingly being sort of much more in the tone of the Lord of the Rings and being being you know almost like this gritty war story toward the end with a lot of tragedy and what I was hoping is that by training a topic model and looking at the topics over time what I could learn would be actually this evolution of topic that you would get. Um, you know, sort of topics pertaining to more whimsical things at the beginning and then more serious topics toward the end. Um, what I instead learned with the topics, which kind of captures a little bit of that, but not quite, 
is really just sort of the the, the chapter structure of the books and, and about sort of what are those what what are the content of the chapters versus the tone of the chapters, um, um, but at the same time I'm at least comforted that the book that the that this automatic dumb method was able to actually find that that it found some meaningful structure in the books. The fact that it found anything is actually pretty exciting, um, uh, and I think actually so I, I you know in your talk um, about your thesis Sparrow. You mentioned sort of on, there's a page on concerns and sort of like preliminary concerns about when you apply these methods. Um, finding things you already knew were there is like a preliminary step. And so I kind of consider this to be sort of that preliminary step. This is the, this is the sanity check. Okay, the model did something reasonable. It found structure that we do know exists in the book. It didn't find anything we, you know, it didn't find anything new. It's not giving us any brand new insights necessarily, but it is. Although you know, perhaps if I sat down with a um, with a scholar, with a literary scholar, and spent some time thinking about this, maybe they would find interesting things. Um, oh, but, sure. But it's and not. For me, the question was, did I know what buttons to push? Yes, if exactly. the graph comes out looking like when Gandalf shows up in the story, then I exactly. know I analyzed Gandalf correctly. You got it. Yes, exactly. Um, but the one thing I, I do think is pretty exciting, so you have a lot of these chapter topics, so like the, to the troll here, riddles in the dark here, um, the black is sort of like the, uh, I believe was the, uh, yeah, that's kind of the goblins, Gandalf, Bayorn type stuff, so this mm. is, you know, their time in the Misty Mountains and the tunnels, and then the escape from the Misty Mountains, and then the wow. confrontation with the goblins and the eagles and Bayorn and all that here. One thing I did get excited about was this purple topic, which is this quest topic where we're talking about the dragon and the door and Thorin and, and Smaug, etc. And you see it's here in the first chapter, and then there's bits and pieces of it throughout, and then it shows up again right here um, when they arrive in Lake Town, and then they go and they occupy the Lonely Mountain. Um, and then it gets dominated by this topic, which is goblins and war. So the recurrence of this purple topic was exciting to me. I was like, okay, that's pretty exciting. Like that, that is sort of getting into, that is sort of moving in the direction of what I was hoping for, which was not just discovering chapter structure, but actually discovering sort of um, uh, story elements and tone and these, you know, getting at this idea of this evolution of, of The Hobbit from um, being sort of a, a whimsical quest to more of a, a, a you know, a, a, you know, like a war, serious war story toward the end. So anyway, um, this is very preliminary work that I did a while ago and haven't really followed up on because um, I have to, I need to finish my PhD qualifications talk and get on with my dissertation, which has nothing to do with this. But it is something I'm interested in following up on, and um, and and um, seeing Sparrow's work is pretty exciting because I'm thinking like, hey, you know, maybe maybe what I need to do is uh, collaborate more um, with folks who are also interested in this stuff. And like you know, put some of these tools and things together. I have a GitHub account here, but actually, there's nothing. I haven't checked anything into it. I need to do that because some people have asked. But um, um, the limitations of this are that the you know the structure that we found is obvious to the reader. It's like, oh wow, you found the chapters. Great job. Um, but uh, um, but I think I think there is a there's a possibility of modifying this analysis to try and find things that are more subtle. The problem is. By removing all the con and this is getting this is something that you know I'm um, we can discuss more as this goes on because you're thinking about these same sorts of things. By removing all the common words, um, all that's left are character names, locations, made up words like hobbit and goblin and things like that. 
um, that only appear in some places, words like spider, that kind of stuff. Um, and that kind of banishes out the language that Tolkien is using to 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 um, um, communicate tone, like and communicate yes. themes. There are so, a lot of different ways to think of stop word files. Um, yes, exactly. May I say a word or two about collaboration? Yeah, sure. That having an online form to our university, I think, encourages collaboration, international collaboration, because yes. I don't have to physically drive to L.A. to yes. sit down with all my stack of index cards. You and I are having a lot of fun. Corey, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how collaborative education is working at Signum right now. Do you see collaborative projects and tell us more about the exciting things going on? Definitely. I mean, I, I certainly think that um, this is this, these kinds of projects are things that we would absolutely love uh, to support and encourage however we can. Uh, you know, and if there are ways that we can assist in sort of the mechanics of collaboration and certainly uh, in helping with uh, sort of circulating uh, the result, you know, the results and and uh, and sort of publicizing things. One of the things that I think, I, you know, as I said at the very beginning, I think that there is generally a lot of resistance to this kind of thing in Tolkien studies. And I would say, you know, I, I was talking about at the beginning. I was speaking about average fans. Um, I think within the sort of professional world uh, of Tolkien studies, that that resistance I would suspect of being way higher than it is among average fans. Um, so it is certainly one role that I would, um, uh, that, that I would hope that we would be able to play is certainly to assist with any kind of, uh, with any kind of online tools that we have at our disposal, uh, to assist with that, but also really of, of, uh, of, of, just kind of endorsing this and helping to kind of circulate and raise awareness of the usefulness of these kinds of things. Um, you know, I think, you know, Dave, I'm thinking back to the, the you, one of the things that you were saying, and I know that you were, you were sort of saying it in this sort of like d deliberately self-deprecating way, but there's nothing that like makes a, makes a, a literary person's run, blood run cold faster than the idea of like, we're just going to treat this book as a bag of words, right? It's just, yeah. you know, there are just a bunch of words in there and we just need to find some kind of pattern among the words. And the literary people are like, um, the words are in a pattern already. They were put in a pattern for a particular reason, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, I mean, it, it would be like sort of looking at, uh, like a, like a, uh, you know, a sand mandala or a stained glass window and being like, we're just going to treat that stained glass window as a bunch of grains of sand. Basically, yeah, we're just, you know, it's just like yeah. a bunch of sand, some one color, some a different color. We just got to yeah. figure out if there's any kind of pattern. And, and you know, again, you know, an art history person would be saying, well, actually, why don't we just, why don't we study the pattern that is already there? Why don't we actually just look with our eyes and think about that? Anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly, okay, actually, no, I'm not exaggerating. Um, the, the, the way that this sounds uh, to people, I think. So the, the, in my mind, the key to kind of communicating the, 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 the value and the usefulness of this stuff is really to, uh, to, to kind of get past that initial that that initial reaction and to begin to understand the ways in which this can be used um this this can be used as a tool so i you know i certainly you know it is it is my hope that one other way in which signum can really help is to um uh is to provide um an excellent uh 
uh, forum, basically, and, yep. and you know, for, for us to, 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 to provide a place for, for people, not only to be sort of posting results and talking about things like that, but also um, give people a place to present those results uh, to other scholars at places like MythMoot and stuff like that. So um, I All certainly right. hope that we will be able to uh, uh, sort of promote and move along these kinds of collaborations cool. and this, this, this cool. kind of study. Also, I think, you know, I have some, I have, I have, you know, um, some experience in these kinds of collaborations since I, I work with medical data. And, um, I was just speaking with, um, with a, like a mentor on the phone last night and he was giving me advice for my dissertation. And he was kind of, he was sort of encouraging me to do some of, some of my research in my PhD looks a little bit like what I just presented here, which is kind of a proof of concept that you can find something by applying these methods to data from this particular domain. Somewhat abstract and not with a particular question to answer, not guided by a real, you know, like, like not looking sort of, um, not starting from a very, very specific kind of question, you know, guided by the domain that I'm working in, but rather just sort of a computer scientist kind of playing around. Um, and he was giving me advice like, you know, you really should sort of moving forward, if you really want to do deep, meaningful, impactful research, you really need to find good questions. Like you need to talk to your, your collaborators who are experts, and you need to, to find out what questions do they really want to answer or what problems do they really want to solve, and then sort of, and then start backing up from there towards sort of figuring out what tools to apply or if you need to build new tools, how to build them and that kind of thing. And I think I agree with you that, that um, that's that's sort of what needs to happen with this line of work. It needs to be less um, people fiddling around and just playing around with the text, and um, like like what I just did, and doing something more like what what we saw in Sparrow's um, thesis, which is actually having hypotheses and and really you know engaging with the text and having specific questions you want to answer. And I think that's where having um, uh, a collaborative forum. Um, where you know, like, where you can you can get you know, if you you don't need to be the expert on everything. So I don't need to be I don't necessarily need to become a really really deep textual expert by at least on my own. Instead, what I can do is engage with people who are actually who look at tools like this and see potential and have questions they want to answer, and then um, allow them to sort of point me in the right direction and give me feedback that kind of stuff. So yeah, and and, and my experience has been that. Um, uh, distance collaborations work really well, actually, that um, if communication is managed properly, um, it actually can be freeing in a way because it allows people to work asynchronously. So, um, uh, right. yeah, I, I think that's really exciting. I'm, I'm really excited. And I think, I, think that, um, I think that Signum and Mythgard can be sort of potentially be kind of like an epicenter of this type of, of cutting-edge, like, work where, you know, we're, we're thinking about sort of how to put together modern tools with with classic techniques um, um, and really engage with the text, figure out the right questions to ask and answer, that kind of stuff. Right, right. Um, uh, one, uh, uh, Dave, could, could you go back uh, in your presentation to the that uh, chart that you had with, like, the yeah. input and, uh, like, the three-stage, um, like, the, the, the visual of... Way back near the beginning, the visual of like the, the the process of doing the analysis and the one that you said you took from somebody else's presentation. Yes, I stole this from uh, David yes. Blay. Yeah, that one. He that is, one. David Blay is the um, the uh, sort of the the father of topic models, um, and he's been one of the ones that's been really pushing them into 
like sort of digital humanities application. Right. But yes. There you go. Okay. Right. And this is now. This is where you know. In, in my mind, the main thing that uh, the thing that has always made me personally resistant to data analysis approaches to studying literature is the left side of that equation, right? Uh-huh. The make assumptions and collect data. Because essentially, like, when you're when you're collecting data from a book, I mean, normally, of course, data people are used to collecting data, which is, is in a sense, randomized, right? I mean, it's not totally random. There are patterns involved. But you're not... The whole point of what you're trying to do is establish what patterns exist that you that normally you can't see. Like it looks like a jumbled mess, so you just have to collect your data and then show what are the patterns that actually underlie what appears to the naked eye like a jumbled mess, right? I mean that's kind of the point of of yep. of, of data mining and data analysis. But of course, when yep. you're do, when you're looking at a work of literature, you don't start with a complete mess with no apparent patterns, right? So in in fact, what what like a, a kind of a, if if you take a pure uh sort of um just well, I can't think of a word to use that doesn't sound pejorative but like just sort of okay blind how about that if you just use like a blind data collection approach to it like let's just pick a bunch of word you know sort of words and and see what words does the text use and stuff you're not actually, you're not actually, th- so you're, you're, you're you, my, my objection was basically you're not finding a structure that was there that we couldn't see. You're eliminating structure that was there that we could see and uh-huh. instead producing something which is closer to nonsense. You know, so the, the, then, yeah, the original book, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so basically it was like, <laughs> When you apply the same methods to literature that you apply to like a pool of financial data or something, it has almost the opposite effect, right? Instead of going from chaos to uh, to order, we're going from order to chaos. Um, but so, so this, to me, this is the most important thing, and this is uh, um, this is what I you know, and so and, and and I like the way that you have been thinking about this, and and I and this is what I have uh, you know, as I've said in on previous occasions, what I admire so much about the work that Sparrow is doing, because I to me the most crucial thing to make this, these tools into useful tools for for studying literature is the data collection and the assumption making. Um, part mm-hmm. of things to say yep. if you're if you're doing actual critical thinking you know if you're doing if you're doing literary thinking there and I don't mean that to suggest that literary thinking is some kind of unique species of thought that normal people <laughs> don't know how to do but but the, you know the kind of thing that both of you were the, the sort of sensible things that both of you were doing um, you know you can't treat the data like a ba- you can't treat a book like a bag of words it's not a bag of words right you know you've got to be thinking about it you've got to be um, you've got to be th- and of course you have to be really careful not to just totally bias your results um, yes. So, um, uh, anyway, yeah. So that's, um, um, that's, that's to me, th- that's sort of where it's all about. You know, that, that, that to me is the key to making this stuff really relevant to, um, right. uh, yeah. to, to and literature. I, and I will say, I will say that I think, um, uh, this applies much more to what I did, less to, to what Sparrow has done. But I, I do think that, where these kinds of tools, the like these topic models and things like that, where they are more likely to shine would be less in the analysis of an individual book and more in the analysis of a collection or a corpus, like a large corpus. That's, you know, where they enable you to do things that are just basically otherwise impossible 
for a human being to sort of do by you know like like unassisted, which is to explore um, you know uh, thousands or millions of documents and billions of words um, and to look for patterns that are sort of exist at a macro level as opposed to a micro level where where sort of you know let's say you want to make um, generalizations. Um, Making generalizations from studying like two or three examples very closely is kind of fraught because you know you may you may be getting a sort of sample selection bias. Um, whereas um, um, if you throw some kind of computational technique at it, it makes it a little bit more possible to look at things that are that are highly common across a really large corpus that an unassisted human being couldn't really look at. I think that Absolutely. is where, yeah, I, and I think. Or otherwise, doing something where if you you make certain processes that human beings want to do, which is like like what Sparrow, what you were showing us, which is looking for all usages of a particular word, so that then the human being can then perform the interpretation analysis of it. Like those are the kinds of things that I think are incredibly useful. Absolutely, and Dave, I have to tell you how much fun. I had putting it together. Um, may I have a chance to answer a couple of questions that came about the concordance? Yes. And can I hand off presenter back to you? I hope so. Okay. And, good. and also, I have okay. I have two questions to answer first. And oh, oh look at me! I'm going to show my screen. Check that out. I clicked a button. All right. First of all, Rena asked about colors. Yes. That is something I was very interested in. And as you know, I took out the 10,000 most common words because I assume everyone can use the 10,000 most common words. That's not what Tolkien can do specially. And that removed all of the color words except one. Rena, I hope you are going to love this word as much as I do. There are about a dozen words that got a very special tag. That tag is gem. And these are the words which quite literally made me weep when I learned more about them. You're ready for the word ruddy, which of course comes from the good old Anglo-Saxon um, stem rud, which means red. But it has interesting interweaving connotations. Now the only place that ruddy is used is in the light inside Smaug's, um, Smaug's hoard inside the mountain, things are silver, red-stained in the ruddy light. So it's, it's this beautiful descriptive word. But it doesn't just mean red. Sure, he's a red dragon, light is red. It's the shade of red that comes from blushing from shame and anger. Hmm. This is this from the Oxford English Dictionary, which was my main resource for definitions and word usage. Not blushing from being um, um, flirting with someone. Apparently, that's a different shade of red. But shame and anger and think about dragons. To Tolkien, dragons weren't, you know, happy, lucky, uh, eastern dragons that was good fortune, and they weren't modern dragons that children love to have stories about dragon dragons. His essential dragons, if I can use Sarah Lagarde's word, were embodied greed. So shame and anger, robust good health, he is absolutely powerfully healthy. Reddish skin, heat, the redness of 
heat is ruddy. He's a dragon. He's about to burn down an entire town. The reddish glow of fire once again. And the redness, the red aridness that causes Flora to wither. All of those different connotations of ruddy, again, taken from the OED, here's our, here's our entry, made me say, in two syllables, he managed to say shameful and angry and powerful and fire and desolate and that's it. So the one color that was not eliminated was ruddy and I'm really glad you brought that up. I hope to do color words very soon once I get moving on the color word. Is that, that is cool? really interesting that, the, that that wasn't on the ten top 10,000 from um, Project Gutenberg. Not only that... It was outside the 100,000. Follow the tag 100K, and you'll find firework, as opposed to fireworks, wobble, snivel, smithereen, slither. You'll find a bunch of words outside the 100,000 most common. Remember two things. Of course, English has a huge number of words with variations on them, and Project Gutenberg is not entirely in English. So, your French pronouns are in the 10,000 most common. Another comment, um, Luke Bauer was, was very darling about my hand typing The Hobbit. And I'm going to say this is something great about the education I've had at MythGuard is as a kinesthetic learner, I was able to create a project that allowed me to put my hands on the words. If I read something, I've only partially gotten I touched every single word in that book, and my understanding was amazing. It, it made a huge difference. So, I'm and I'm going to I'm going to not give the screen back yet because I want to play a game. Corey and Dave, are you ready to play a game? Would you like yes. to? I am. Can I give a quick update first? Oh yes, because I have an exciting update. We did in oh, fact should I, should I meet our. Okay? Uh, yeah, I did. In fa- we did in fact meet our thousand uh, uh, dollar match within the first hour, um, and we've received another seven hundred and fifty dollars since then. Uh, so that means the total, counting our matching fund, the total that we have raised on during uh, this first segment so far is two thousand eight hundred and forty dollars, uh, and the new total not yet. Uh, it's been. It's uh, we we uh, we update this page manually, so uh, we're okay. we're lagging a little bit behind the reality. But the true uh, the 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 overall total right now is at thirty one thousand and three. So only wow. Yeah. Well, thank you, donors. Yes. Thanks thank everybody for all the all the the, the the marvelous generosity that has been pouring in so far today. I just can't express how much uh, how much I appreciate that. Very good. All right. Do you feel ready for a little challenge? I do. Yes. Let's do okay. it. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. And members of the audience, of course, you can. One of the things I did was make my graphs of, and this is the graph of when the uncommon words were used in The Hobbit. Look in places where you speak foreign words or when Gollum is speaking, we have a lot of uncommon words. And my project and my blog go on at great length about the common words, the uncommon words, I beg your pardon. So, I'd like to look at some of the new words that I've charted 
and see, I'm going to show you the graphs and challenge you to guess what the words or the topics are. You want to try it? Yeah. So I'm going to show you a new red line, and I want to hear what you have to say about it. Here we have, we've got our chapter markers ready, and it's mm -hmm. a team effort. You two talk to each other, okay? Yep. Here is right. here is challenge A. Okay. Oh, what do you high, see? high peak in chapter nine. Okay, so that's yep. barrels out of bond, but it drops to nothing down in chapter eleven, which is on the doorstep. Oh, so okay. it helps to it helps to know the the, the for this Where game you chapter? you have to know the chapters of the Hobbit like backwards and forwards. Again, are we in chapter twelve again? Chapter, chapter 12, 12 is we have another peak. That's that's uh, oh, that's, that's that's the conversation with Smout. Yeah, that's inside okay, information. Yeah. And down here is the war. Yeah. Yeah. 16 uh, is okay. So what word would something that Something to do with barrels. And here's and here's your hint Ooh. is that this particular graph I did yesterday it is a group of words. It is three words that I've made an assumption are closely related. Okay. 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 So general topics are fine. It's okay, got to so have to do with like barrel rider, tub trading. No, okay, no. Um. Something. <laughs> yes, that 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 group there. It actually has nothing to do with barrels. Okay. Okay. Um, it is a more abstract concept than a barrel. Hmm. Mm. Okay. Okay. Mm. Um. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna look and see if we have any guesses from our. From our audience, hold on. I'm, this is me. Arrow's giving up on us already. Oh, I've got question. Bodies of water, Lake Town related. Um, something to do with water. Okay, we've got a lot of guesses about water. Well, <laughs> containers. Containers. Okay, even more abstract. I'm going to reveal it because I've got a bunch of these saved up. I had okay. oh, I had too much <laughs> coffee this morning. You guys are really too slow. It was a coffee morning. Um, this is luck, chance, faith, oh. and fortune. Oh, no way. That way, luck and chance? Way. Luck and chance and lucky. Oh, get and lucky out. Lucky and unlucky and fortunate and unfortunate. Right. Oh, yeah, okay. luck of a peculiar kind was with, yes, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Here he is getting the ring, luck of a peculiar kind. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Is, luck wearer, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so, I mean, so, so you included number. combinations like, uh, like, like lucky and and luck wearer and. Yes. Okay. Yes. What's okay. wrong with us, Corey? It's okay. No, You're that is fun. so cool. Hang on, hang on a second. Wait, wait, wait. Don't go. I'm not going. <laughs> Don't go. I'm not the, going. The, if you the, need to screenshot that, people. The gap. I, mean, I do need to screenshot screen. that. So hang on a second. Um, All right. The gap here in. Um, in what chapter? Yes, that's what I'm looking. That's what I'm really yes. fascinated by. That that yes. luck is nowhere in chapter 16 of all things. That's the that's the thief in the night right? uh, uh, one. That's, the night. that's nothing to do with luck and everything to do with will. That's amazing. That right. is just amazing. Holy cow! So I want you also to keep your eye on chapters 15, 16, 17 region because I think I see a pattern, although I'm not yet certain. Okay. Of between this and the other words coming up. All right. Are we ready for challenge B? Yes. Yes. Challenge B is a word brought to us by one of the blog readers. Chapter six is uh, wargs. 
Out of the frying pan into the fire, yeah. Spiders. Yeah, yeah. This is flies and spiders. Um, of course, they're, we're in the Shire. Here we have um, goblins. What are some concepts you would like to suggest? Let's see what our studio audience... Uh, oh, oh, someone needed the lucky. There we go. Um, this one is one particular word, but it is... Lemmatized. So this is, for example, knit, knits, knitting, knitted, right. all together. But but the word is not knit. It's not dark. Although Professor Van G, I think dark would be a really interesting word to do. Yes, dark would be it's, a really interesting oh, word to do. Oh, Gerald Michael has a guess about trees. He is. Very close. Think about trees <clears throat> in chapter six. That's just what I was. I was just going to point out Gerald's guess, which sounds to me like an excellent one. Um, that is, he is, he is right on topic. I'm going to move this over slightly so that I can see two different windows at once. Forest. Our word. Our say again, Dave. Forest. Forest. You were get get back to individual trees. This word is round. Round. Because in chapter six. The wards go round and round. Oh, uh, round and round the trees. They don't right. go all round. They go round, and it's always round and round in that chapter. Right, they Those go round and round several times, don't they? Several times, right. That phrase is repeated at least four times in that chapter, so that's why we get the skyrocket right there. Wow. And here we are huh. facing around. Isn't that fun? Okay, okay, here we go. I am going to show you challenge word... Oops. This is one. Show you challenge word C. And this is one individual word. Challenge word one C. One single you don't word. See it. One single word, which we don't see in chapter 5, which plummets in 14 and 15. It soars at the end of Flies and Spiders. And otherwise is kind of constant throughout, but we we leave the word behind when we go home to the Shire. Okay. But it's interestingly big fat. Interestingly, it's interestingly peaked in chapter one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's, it comes up in chapter one and chapter 17 specifically. So chapter 17 yeah. is the actual oh, battle yeah. of five armies. Yes. yes chapter is. 13, uh, of course, is not at home. Not at home. Where we, where the, the dwarves go into the mountains, Smaug is out, you know, burning right. sheep and stuff. Right. The, the word is apparently absent in, uh, chapter 14, which is, uh, the, the, the fire and water. It's the death of Smaug chapter. Yes, it is. And you are, you are on the track, Corey. What is the, the difference in personnel between yeah. chapters 13 and 14? Yeah. Yeah. So it's where we shift from the lonely mountain to Lake Town. Sarah Lagarde got it. Oh yeah. That oh yeah. That oh is wow. The word, that oh. is the word dwarves. 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 I never would. I never would have guessed that dwarves peaks in chapter eight. But of course, that's when they're talking to the elf king, and we're getting yes. all of that uh, all uh. of that background information about uh, you know. Of course, that dwarves have often had uh, had conflict with elves, and you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he's wondering what dwarves are doing in his forest, and and okay, all right, I can see how the that word would come up a lot there. And of course, Dave makes a perfect sense. Your peak in chapter one, 
Um, and of and course, the absence in chapter five. Right, right, right. And the absence in chapter five. We just got a really big compliment from Denise Kelly, who says she loves this kind of word analysis, and it makes her want to do her own master's thesis. Absolutely. Yeah. Yay! Yay! More friends. All right, I'm ready to get you again. Word, <laughs> word D. And this huh. is all right. There's none of it. Gollum has none. <laughs> no yeah. one anywhere near Gollum has any. This is one word. It's one syllable. And I was really surprised to it, find it so high at the end of chapter nineteen. It spikes in nineteen. I mean, that's a that's a spike at the very end, right? That's yes. That's a complete anomaly. But then I realized that in chapter nineteen, what Gandalf is doing for us. You know, it, it doesn't say epilogue, but he's telling us the epilogue. Right. And I'm going to look at I'm going to look at our people's guesses. It's a one-syllable word. Oh. And we've got a spike there in chapter twelve. Love. It is. It is not the word hope, but that's a great guess. I love the way you think. <laughs> I, 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 I love the people this guessing. Is Professor Van G from Nottingham in the UK. Uh, and oh, but there's a bunch of it in chapter one. Huh. Yes. Very interesting. Yes. It's one syllable. It ends with D. Good? Although, no, no, no good. The, no the, good. the gradations are so granular that you can tell it's a not very frequently used word. Yeah. The word is gold. It is gold. Oh, uh, right. And of, so, of course, yes, when we're hearing about the master oh. of Lake Town absconding with all the gold at the end. With all the gold. The, yes, yes, Sarah Lagarde said gold. And I've, I've just scrolled down to see yep. Sarah's. Sarah's got it. Very good. Go and on. I'd like to, to comment that uh, Professor Van G from the UK has suggested food, and I think he needs to go to my blog and click on the food tag. That's right. you got a whole section on food words. We have a whole section on food. Food is awesome. All right. Um, challenge E. That's too easy. We'll skip to. Okay. Challenge. This is... All right, it's kind of over the top geeky, and if I then have to sit in my corner and be As really contrasted quiet, with the rest of the, <laughs> with the rest of our <laughs> of our time here this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's contrasted with the rest of our time here this morning. <laughs> Even by our standards, I, this is yeah. Right, I came up with two things: challenge F and challenge G to look at that I I knew would be different, but they travel together a little bit. So. Challenge F. Here we go. Something is distributed in that pattern throughout the work, and most things, most words, the top of the graph is somewhere around two or three instances of the word per thousand. The way that Lexos draws these graphics, and I might not even have the time to show it to you guys, Lexos, Lexos rocks. Um, the way that Lexus draws the graphs is it stretches out the red line to fill the box so that our eyes have an easier job interpreting. But compared to this graph, which goes all the way up to seven words per thousand, a lot of words, in comparison, travel around down here. Mm -hmm. All right. And your big hint is it's not a word. Whoa. It's a name? Whoa. Well, what piece of punctuation? Piece of punctuation? No way. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. 
Oh, you're right. That is over the top geeky. Okay, all right, all right, okay, all right. This is uh, this is this, this is getting real here. Okay. This is serious. This yeah. is very serious. Now, and I'd like you to note that it bottoms out in chapter eight. It bottoms out in chapter eight. Now, isn't that sparrow uh, that that trough there in chapter eight very yes. near the overall common word use? Yes, it is. Trough? I'm going to superimpose the uncommon word trough if yeah. I. And, I'm remembering oh, back right. to the overall map of uh, the uncommon word usage. Is. Yeah, That's there it is. All the uncommon words right down there at in the middle of chapter eight. When they're crossing the river. When they're crossing the river. So okay. this is a little bit before that, but something stylistically was happening in the beginning of chapter eight. So not only were there no uncommon words, they were all plain, ordinary, everyday words, but there was no occurrence of this slightly unusual piece of punctuation. Uh, oh, okay, okay. Hang, hold that thought. Hold that thought, because I need to show you the other piece of punctuation that I charted. And it's, can, can I just, so, seven. We got the first half of chapter seven, which is the eagles. So, and that's, bef- that's before they get to, like, as they're getting to Bjorns, but not yes. the time that, because it's dropping in the second half of chapter eight really quickly, or seven, rather, really quickly. So, it's like, it's not something that comes up during the time that they spend at Bjorns, just the eagles and the, like, talking about going to Bjorns in the first half of the chapter. Yes. Okay. Okay. Isn't that fascinating? That this now that is a serious <laughs> puzzle right there. Kimber Nelson is so close. It is definitely not exclamation marks, points, or quotation marks. Kimber and Kate and Rena and Eve are all describing this graph. Ah. <laughs> right. Now, where does this graph peak? Chapter 1. Chapter 1. It comes back up in 19, does it not? And again with the chapter 8 trough. That's... And, and then, I mean, chapter 8. I don't know if this was something happened in chapter 8 that we need more looking at from the Middle Earth perspective, or from when Bilbo was writing it, he was particularly tired or even what was going on in Tolkien's life when he was writing the beginning of chapter 8. There are so many different ways we can look at. And it's so, I I mean, let's see, you know, can I just say, actually, can I just pause here to to do a sort of an overall commentary for a second? This is why I find this tool so amazing, because, you know, I, I would never have guessed, I would never in a billion years have guessed that... All of these these patterns which are suggesting that essentially the prose style of the narration of The Hobbit is uh-huh. at its most pedestrian and mundane in uh-huh. the first half of chapter 8. That's when they cross into Mirkwood. That's the dis- initial uh-huh. descriptions of Mirkwood uh-huh. up through the eerie fairy magic crossing of the magic black river and the mysterious shooting of the white stag. Right. Like, one of the passages in the book, crazy? which seems most otherworldly, most bizarre, like, I would, I would have never guessed. I mean, like, it would have been near the very bottom of my list that in that moment, when they seem to be stepping into the, like, the fairy otherworld and, like, the whole world that Bilbo has known is, like, you know, they're living in, like, this inverse dark world. I mean, I would never have that's guessed that that's, that's the place. The Corey, Corey. Yeah. Look. 
stuff from the Shire yeah. is the opposite. It's the opposite of, of chapter stuff eight. Yes. From the beginning of chapter eight. Because yeah. these words, as many uh, in our audience have guessed, these words and which and this peaks out at twelve per thousand have Hyphens in hyphens them. in them, right? Uh, so it's hyphenated. Uh, these are the Shire native. So this isn't occurrences of like the sort of the hyphens that that um, interrupt sentences. This is no, words. those are dashes. These are hyphens, such <laughs> as right. Of course, yes. Dashes, hello, <laughs> which okay. And my other graph is dashes. Um, but this is hyphens because Bilbo's native language, Westron has words that are so specific, like right. much time and da 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 da, da that um, English, translating them into English by J.R.R. Tolkien compiler, means that he doesn't have words for it. He doesn't have words for everyday Hobbit stuff. He's got to glom these two words together to imitate the agglutinative language that Bilbo spoke in the Shire. Now here we are. Now we know more about the Westron tongue. And we see the evidence. Token doesn't have to write. It's agglutinative. We see it right there. So here we are in chapter 8. Not only are we not in the Shire anymore, but Bilpo has kind of run out of words. All right, it's damp. And damp translates to English. Good. Uh, it's soggy. We're hungry. Um, but uh, it, it, there were trees. They were black. Um, he's stunned. His words have left him, and he can only communicate in these in these basic concepts because he doesn't have any words for this whole different world. And I just I, I I love this idea. Of course, Tolkien uses a lot of hyphenated words. I mean, I recall just in my own experience in my book. Um, I went back and forth with the proofreaders at Houghton Mifflin a bunch of times because they kept wanting to change the words. Well, I, I was I, I very often, um, very self consciously adopted Tolkien's usage to try to follow Tolkien's own word usage and spelling usage in the course of my discussion. And they the hyphenated words were like the bane of the of the proofreader's existence. They're like that word isn't hyphenated or those words don't need a hyphen. And <laughs> right. I'm like I'm like don't make me come down there right. I can keep that word hyphenated because that that's why. To, and, 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 and they're like, it's not even consistent. You used it unhyphenated over here. I'm like, look, dude, you know, hold a seance and talk to the professor. I don't know, but that's how he used it. And for crying yes. out loud, we're going to keep it. And I love the idea yes. that, um, you know, Sparrow, this is one of my favorite uh, of of your ideas, um, the way in which you sort of talk about these hyphenated words as, um, and can I just say my, my, my day is like already blessed by the fact that I get to word the use the word agglutinative. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's already made my day, you know, but, uh, but anyway, so it's, it's, um, the concept that, like, for instance, the hyphenated word dragonfire is not just, you know, it's not just a sort of a quirk of usage. That the, the idea there is that that is a way, an attempt to convey in common English, in common modern English, there is a word that means dragonfire. Um, you know, but, but we don't have a, a modern English word which means specifically the fire of dragons. So you just have to, you just have to do that through hyphenation. Um, love that idea. 
and folks that are interested in hyphenated words in The Hobbit, there is a hyphen tag. Every word that I entered, which is a hyphenated word, has that tag to help you um, put together all the cool words for your project. Right? We've got some. Yeah. We've got some great tags going. Here. All right. So that was what I was very excited about. Let me get back to our graphs. This is hyphenated words. This is dashes in conversation. Just as a, I'm talking along very fast, dash, now I'm going to move on to another clause. Because, oh my goodness, there wasn't enough X, Y, Z. So, and there, they both peak in chapter one and trough in chapter eight. So, what's going on? Could you go back and forth again? Go, go to the other um, one again? Hyphenated chapter words. Chapter 12 I was looking at, yeah. Okay. Yeah, hyphenated okay. words, yeah. dashes. Isn't that cool? That's now, very I, interesting. Yeah, right. To me, dashes seem to make the pace of the words go faster. I don't know if that's just me reading in my head. But all right. So those, all of these graphs I'm going to be putting up on the blog in the next week or so. And so you can you can copy them again then. I got some a great question um, a few minutes ago from Caden. Which paragraph is that trough in? Um, the window we're looking at, we're looking at a window of 5,000 words. Oh, some people have to go. So very sad. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> right. Who's going to do this in the Silmarillion, says Luke. Boy, oh, boy, if I get the funding that I have applied for, I will keep going through Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion with all of this. <laughs> have fun get, typing those up. Right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? It can take care of the entire winter. Right? <laughs> That's right. The long I New Hampshire window, there's Sparrow snowed into the little straw house typing the Lord of the Rings. I love, I love being snowed in. I just want to shout well, out. Oh, and if you're going to, I feel like if you're going to do Silmarillion, I feel like you really should just go ahead and do um, the histories of Middle Earth so we can get all the different <laughs> versions of Middle Earth. Hey, I've, I've already talked to her about this. Like, I want to see, I, I want to see like a stylistic analysis of, you know, like comparing the Book of Lost Tales to the Silmarillion to the Lord of the Rings. Like, oh yeah, I, I, I've already Absolutely. put in requests for this. Absolutely. I want to find out if all of Gollum's S's from The Hobbit carry over into The Lord of the Rings. I want to go next. Do you remember my work on the Athrobeth Professor? Yes, I absolutely. Noticed, I noticed we go from you to thou. Yes. I oh, a comprehensive you-thou study would be awesome. Oh, oh man. Rock. I want to hey. use this great tool. This tool, Lexos from Wheaton College, and even in, in the UK, you ought to bookmark that link. Um, this is Professor Droughts and his colleagues' tool that they created to do textual analysis. It's the one thing that I used. You can run statistics on your text, discover how many different words there are, how many of them only occur once out of how many total, and then using the visualize tool, that's where you make the um, graphs. So you've got your text and pick a word. Okay, I'm uh, right now. I'm not looking at the chat window. So Professor Olson, tell me the first word that comes up that someone wants to have a graph of. Okay. All right. Um, uh, 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 round. Oh, we already we, saw we did that, that one. one. <laughs> we, did <round. laughs> we did that one. Yeah. So that's the first one. 
Let's pick a color. Uh, wait, dark. We said dark earlier. Dark. Oh, dark would be good. Ready? <laughs> Kate okay. Neville wants bacon. Can we do that one after? <laughs> we can do we can do dark and we can do bacon. Okay. Here we go. We're not mash them up. Right. Okay. When does dark correlate? Actually, yeah, the, yeah. Let's let's overlap dark and bacon and, and see how oh. the two of them fit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, unavailable. I'm going to redraw because that was sad. We're going to redo dark. <laughs> Ooh, okay. That's chapter five. Right. Of course, yes. Riddles Chapter in the, eight does yeah. not have a. This is nice. Would you? It no. it would take me a minute to superimpose that on the chapter markers. So maybe Professor Olson, you can tell us what are great ways to support this kind of project and people's individual education while I put the chapter markers on. Absolutely, yes, okay. yes. Um, so I, I am. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, uh, to sort of emphasize the, you know, I've, I talked a little bit earlier on about the, the, the kinds of things that we are raising money for, how we, uh, the, this, you know, the sort of plan that we have always had, our, our, our sort of MO at, at, uh, Mythgard and Signum is to, uh, you know, give away everything that we can and charge as little as possible for all the things that we do have to charge for. Uh, to cover our expenses, and obviously, um, you know, this is a kind of thing you can only keep doing over time uh, with the generous gifts and support uh, of your listeners and students. So, um, we are, you know, we definitely are reliant on that, and that's, you know, sort of the the overall the overall system, the overall institution that uh, you are helping to support um, when you give donations. Um, I would I would want to sort of draw people's attention to the you know we do. Uh, we do love to um, sort of uh, reward and show our appreciation to the people who do uh, give. So I, I wanted to, on this on the uh, the Signum Fund page. That's the signumuniversity.org uh, slash fund page. If you scroll down um, uh, a little bit there, you can see uh, a little further down. Keep going okay. um, down to the annual fund donor levels. Good. Okay, the next chart. The next okay. chart below. Oh, next chart. Got all of our donor videos. levels. There donor they are. levels. There we are. That's right. Um, uh, the different uh, sort of uh, uh, gifts which we are happy to bestow upon people. Sort of the access that we're able to give them um, for uh, you know in in gratitude for your uh, for your donation. Um, everybody who donates twenty five dollars uh, and above gets voting privileges in the Mythgard Academy courses. Um, the Mythgard Academy courses, of course, are, are these uh, the, these free, uh, you know, close studies of uh, popular books that people you know really love and want to study more. Many people have. Um, uh, I remember years ago when I was you know in my first couple years of doing the Tolkien Professor podcast, people were like, "We should do like an in depth series, you know, discussion of the history of Middle Earth series." And I'm like, "Whoa, that's a really big project, man! I'm not quite sure how we're going to be able to do that." Well, we're doing it now through the Mythgard Academy. It's been great. We've already done the first three volumes of the history of Middle Earth series, and it's been super cool. Um, but anyway, so everybody who donates twenty five dollars and above gets voting privileges, gets the you know the opportunity to choose whatever book we do next. I don't choose the books. In fact, I have no say in them whatsoever. Okay, I do get veto power. Uh, <laughs> I can exert a veto potentially, um, though I've never had to do that yet. Um, 
And in fact, the book we're doing now, right now we're in the very middle of uh, our course on Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark, which I am absolutely loving. Um, and I had never even read that book before it got elected. Um, so that was the first time a book that I didn't even know at all got elected, and I've, uh, I'm so delighted that it did. Um, it's been a great deal of fun. Um, people who, who donate uh, $100 or more, and do keep in mind this is totaled over the course of the whole year. So if you give just like a, you know, a monthly donation of just, you know, you, you, you set up a donation of, uh, a recurring donation of 10 bucks a month, um, you know, then that'll be, you know, uh, comfortably over 100 for the year. Um, everyone who donates $100 or more gets uh, membership on the Council of the Wise. This is the, this is the group of people who actually nominate the books and they choose a, a slate of finalists and then all of the, uh, the whole electorate, um, gets to vote which of the usually four or five finalists, um, we're going to, to, uh, to, to talk about next. So if there are books you would really like uh, like to see us do uh then um you know uh the, by all means we'd love your participation in the council of the wise uh people who donate at the 250 dollar level the 500 dollar level the thousand dollar level um we are we are delighted to give you special access to our courses you'll you'll get a, a, a sort of a, a a free seat in in one of our uh regular semester classes which are really cool or access to uh, and uh, access to uh, the recordings of, of of one of our previous classes. Um, it's um, it's been it's been great. Curtis Wayant is teasing me about uh, 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 hoping that Twilight wins the election. You know, Curtis, I'm not even sure I would use my veto on Twilight. I've read Twilight. I found it tedious, uh, but you know, if it won, I'd do it. I'd do it. I was, I, I'm, oh, you know, you heard uh, it yeah. <laughs> Because it's awful doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile, not worth study. Right. It might be terribly written, uh, and it is terribly written. Meyer's uh, grasp on, uh, you know, uh, acceptable English syntax is tenuous. But, you know... Some of us serve as a warning to others. (laughs) Exactly. It could be a learning experience for everybody. So go ahead. I double-dog dare you to elect Twilight. I'll do it. I double-dog dare (laughs) You have much less objection to treating that as a bag of words. Absolutely, there are parts of it which are which do kind of sound like a bag of words, actually. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so I just wanted to I just wanted to to emphasize the way, and of course, for those of you who have already given, we will be in touch with you as our campaign finishes here at, by the end of today, um, uh, and. Um, uh, and, and to, you know, to, about uh, the, uh, the 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 gratitude we would like to express to you, and the rewards that we would like to extend to you. So I just wanted to make sure to emphasize uh, um, uh, to to emphasize that. And once again, just to thank everybody for uh, for the gifts that you have given. Um, uh, so thanks, uh, thanks very much, uh, to everybody. And, and again, we're, 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 we're over 31,000 now and, and, and moving forward. We've made a, we've made a huge jump forward in that we're just about over $3,000, uh, for the webathon so far, which is awesome. So, wow, um, that is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so thanks to everybody. <laughs> okay. I'd just d- like to show everyone the bacon chart. Okay. <laughs> we have, we have bacon in- <laughs> Chapters six and seven. We have a bunch of bacon in in chapter six. And probably that is an entire window. Bacon. He was hungry, and they were being roast fried. Yeah. Oh no no. You know what that is? That's that when he's saying that he feels like a bacon that's been taken out of the pan and uh, put back on the shelf, and then but the eagles aren't forks, right? Um, That's that's it. 
That's it exactly. It can be used under very different circumstances. Yeah. 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 And here is our graph of dark. Great. So I, I thank Misty the people Mountains and Gollum's Cave, Mirkwood, yeah. the dragon, uh, the infiltration of the mountain. Dragon's Cave, absolutely. Though, again, so I'd like to encourage people to keep giving me words through the blog comments. I would love to put up the charts that people want to see. Can I, I, can I, I, oh man, hang on. More commentary on this, on this graph. So notice. Oh, okay. okay. The peak, the second peak of, uh, of dark is not Mirkwood, but talking about Mirkwood and sitting yeah. in the dark in Bjorn's house. Um, like with the time when they sing the wind song and everything, that's what's going on there in chapter seven. Only the fire is going. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the smoke rings and this, and then they sing their song and everything. Um, and, and again, and, and they are talking about Mirkwood and going into Mirkwood, but the, that, so that the darkness in Bjorn's house and the conversation about Mirkwood is actually darker than Mirkwood itself as far as the usage of the yes. actual word. Um, and, and then uh, by the time we're running for our lives, yes. we're we're not even we're not looking around. We're not we we're not thinking about the darkness like. anymore. Running. Yeah, we're running very fast, and we're thinking and we're making decisions, but we don't care what it looks like. Yeah. So. This this is interesting. This does illustrate the um, the perils of of uh, wantonly removing stop words, right? Like yes. It, like, um, because this is a common word, so this is sort of the like, like you know, this might come out on a list of like, oh, let's remove the new nuisance words. But actually, I think for the Hobbit, you know, for the kinds of things I was trying to do with the text, this is what I'm actually looking for. These are the patterns you want. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's much less interesting, you know, seeing how often the word Bilbo shows up in there. What's more interesting is is you know which chapters are dark and which aren't, and that kind of thing. And um, the the trough in chapter twelve is the other thing that I am, am really interested in there. Um, that oh, in, yeah. inside information. I mean, he's down in the tunnel. It's dark. Apart from the glow of the worm, it is dark in that whole cha- that whole chapter happens in the dark, and yet uh-huh. the word is almost is almost never used. It is interesting that the yeah the peaks seem to often be in anticipation of going into a dark place. Yes, the end uh, of chapter eleven. Then, yeah. Once Bilbo's in the moment, he he uh, he invariably rises to the occasion. Yeah, he's paying attention to other things. Right. Yeah. Chapter there's two. More, there's more to be scared of. Chapter two. It's the trolls. It's dark. It's it's nighttime, right? I mean, it's dark yeah. apart from the trolls' fire all through chapter two. But we don't talk yeah. about the dark. I mean, he doesn't, doesn't use the word. Chapter six, right? Out of the frying pan into the fire. The whole warg sequence. You know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. So, so, so dark is being used more commonly when he's at home, in Bag End, than than in, say, the Troll Cave. Yes. Oh, dark, dark. Uh, or even during like the whole second half dark of their time. Dark something for dark business. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Dark for dark. Uh, yes, we like the dark. Dark for dark business. That's three times in one in one paragraph. There. Uh, yeah. There you go, somebody. There's a myth card paper. Yes, there is. Um, hey, can you pull up the? Do you have the food plot handy? I I am a woman who has the food plot handy. That's exactly <laughs> kind of yeah I am. This is like and my. This is like is my favorite one. Okay. And I'm switching my chapter marker note. You see my problem? Okay. I sort of go off the end of nineteen. Lexos update has new perfectly placed chapter markers. That I've learned how to use 
Oh, good. And so most of my graphs are get to be fixed. Where's food? Here's food. There we go. What do you make of this? What, what's your, what story would you tell about this plot, Corey? Well, oh, oh. <sighs> can I say? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. And, and yes, it's, it's, you know, it's Corey's planet. However, <laughs> I, I spotted this, and this was something when I was doing my project. I said, wait a minute. He's talking about food. Okay, dwarves show up. They're hungry, right? Great. But then his took side started to rouse, and his baggages side reasserted himself. Mm -hmm. And he got tookish. And then he's really brave and tookish. And now he's, I'm, he's both very hungry and feels like a piece of bacon. Okay, good. And then he's not even thinking about food anymore. He's on a big adventure. And then his Baggins-ishness comes back. And then he's mm -hmm. tookish and adventuring. And then they talk about cram. This is the discussion of cram. <laughs> and then they talk about cram. <laughs> oh my god, there's only cram. Then it goes away, it comes back a little bit, goes away to me, and it's at the very end. That's the tobacco jar. That the tobacco exact jar spot at the end, yeah. The tobacco yeah. jar. My thought is, this is watching his stable nature Try, keep trying to assert itself. The baggishness, baggishness keeps coming back, but the adventure knocks it away. And in my head, there's a parallel to the experience of of becoming combat weary. Mm -hmm. That that it keeps being the the baggishness falls down, and it tries to reassert. And by the end. When we've got the scene going back into the Shire, well, we've had we've had no food for a while. So his world is bigger. He's thinking a lot less about food, and I'm in favor of that because now he's this adventurous, multi-dimensional person. I also like seeing the food come back. Mm -hmm. you know, the 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 poem that the Tra La 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 Alley elves sing at that point isn't oh Tra La La, we should go dancing. It's the the dragon is withered. The bad things are over. And you can stand down. You can relax, little one. That's right. Your world is bigger. I'm crying. Okay, I'm crying. <laughs> Your world is bigger. Your world is more precious. And you can take the time to heal. That's what I see in this line. And things are still tra la la lolly down in the valley, right? It's the return yeah, to... They really are. It's going to come back. It's going to be all right. Yeah. I I think it's so fast. This is my favorite plot because it's so fascinating that that I I saw exactly the same pattern um, that uh, that that you did, Sparrow. Which is, food words are almost exact are like almost perfectly capturing the um, not only sort of the 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 general trend um, from from a uh, like you know a a whimsical fairy tale toward a to a much more serious book, but also the Baggins took tug of war in Bilbo, and that uptick at the end. The reason it doesn't, the reason it's not higher, is just because the, he spends so little, like because the end's so abrupt. He just immediately arrives home, right? Like the journey home is so fast. If there were, if 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 Tolkien had sort of drawn out the arrival home a little bit longer, that peak would probably get up to about as high as it is in chapter one. 
because um, you're doing you're doing this moving average over a large window, and so yes. um, there's a there's a cluster of occurrences of food related words right at the end, but it's being averaged with um, um, the, you know the dearth of word of food related words from the previous chapter because that ending is so abrupt. Otherwise, it would probably be a much higher peak. Um, cool. But I love this plot. I mean, this this like. This is like it's amazing, just like a cluster, just a, a, a handful of words related to food and other, you know, things like tobacco and stuff, um, uh, are really able to sort of trace out one of the key, you know, some, several of the key uh, themes and changes in the book. Yeah, um, Josiah McCoy had a great suggestion, which is to overlay this graph uh, with one um, for the word baggins. Yeah. Yes, that would be an awesome graph. Yeah. And I'm going to look at me. I'm jotting that down because it is noon, and that means that that my um, what is it Baggins graph, and that my time here with you lovely people is is almost over. Yes, we mine, do. Which is very which is very sad, but also very happy because what is coming up next? Next, next, we are going to do our special Mythgard Academy one-shot class on the Father Christmas letters. Oh, so cool. Yeah. Good idea. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that we can, uh, it would be fun to do a kind of a regular check-in, uh, with you, especially if you guys are able to, uh, to do some collaboration. I mean, I was, I was delighted to hear you guys talking about that, as that is certainly, uh, you know, something that was very clear to, I mean, of course, you know, Dave, the first, I knew that you had been working on this stuff and I heard you give your presentation at Mythmoot last year. Um, so, you know, as I was working with Sparrow on her, on her thesis, uh, you know, I was constantly like, oh man, Dave has really got, <laughs> Dave has really got a way in on this. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, but you know, I, I, it's clear that you, that the two of you have uh, have have so much to offer each other in a collaboration. Yep. You know, with Dave, with his uh, uh, with his sort of advanced computer modeling and his uh, his his familiarity with the the whole data collection and data analysis world, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, and and Sparrow with her awesome spreadsheets and concordances and all the things that you're already often doing. Um, yep. Sparrow. So, I, didn't, uh, yeah. I didn't even have to do any filler with, do you want to look at my spreadsheet from Ursula K. Le Guin? <laughs> but I have one. But I have one. <laughs> so you know. And so I'm going to sit here and answer any questions. Oh, the Baggins Word. I have a couple of people asking about the Baggins Word group. Keep your eye on that blog, folks. Um, that is words that you were saying. Just take the spaces out when you search on it and you'll be able to find our website. Yes. And of course, I hope, uh, you know, as a, la- a final last quiz, of course, I hope everyone recognizes the reference in the title of of, uh, of of Sparrow's blog. You will remember that's what Bilbo says when he overhears uh, himself being called looking more like a grocer than a burglar. And he, on his dignity, goes back into the other room and says, pardon me if I, if I have heard words that you were saying. Um, so anyway... So yes, do do keep an eye on that. So uh um so thank you. 
Kate Neville, in, in an excellent transition attempt, is saying we should analyze words in Father Christmas and Rover Random, uh, which are both written for kids, and actually comparing those to the Hobbits, uh, to the Hobbit and word usage in the first half of the Hobbit versus the second half of the Hobbit. But anyway, I, 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 I will stop giving Sparrow new projects now. Uh, (laughs) but anyway thanks very much to both of you for joining us here this morning uh for giving us such a wonderful and auspicious uh beginning of our of our uh our 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 webathon here and the culmination of our of our fundraising campaign thank you for both for your time and for all the work that you've been doing you bet awful lot of fun word on my friends (laughs) 